It's May 11th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're going to start the hour by featuring a couple of upcoming events. First, Danielle Miller from Maui is going to tell us about an upcoming social media school workshop over on the Valley Island. Then Lauren Kaup from the AAUW will tell us about the next tech-savvy event coming up at Hawaii Pacific University. And finally, we'll talk to Jackie Keen, Roy Gell, and Ollie Hanno from the Institute for Astronomy about cold, rocky comets. It's an astronomy update, and of course, we always welcome your comments and questions as part of that conversation as well. You can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. And of course, first up, we want to welcome Danielle Miller from the Maui Social Media School, and she's joining us by phone all the way from Maui. We want to welcome you to Bite Marsh Cafe and tell us about this uh, creating a social media marketing plan. Danielle, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to share the inaugural Maui Social Media School workshop with everybody. This is um, a collaboration of myself. My my company is actually Miller Media Management. We're Maui's top-rated social media company. And I'm partnering with Nicole Fisher of Skywriting by Nico. And the two of us have created Maui Social Media School to offer business owners the opportunity to get hands-on social media training. Well, that's great. I mean, I know there have been a number of different social media workshops and schools and sessions uh, on Maui. And so how long have you guys been doing this? And and, uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about the, you know, the uh, workshop that you guys are coming up with. Fantastic. So Nicole and I have a combined um, 40 years marketing experience, but of course, social media has been around significantly shorter than that. And so both of us have been teaching social media for at least three years. Um, I work with adventures at UH, and so I'm an adventures instructor. And Nico also teaches with the Maui County Business Resource Center, and both of us have been guest speakers for Maui Social Media Users Group. The workshop itself is happening next Thursday, which is May 19th. It takes place from 9 a.m. until 4.30 p.m. right at the Maui Tech Park at the Maui Research and Technology Center Mm -hmm. over by the Maui Brewing Company. The training, this workshop, is absolutely unlike any other workshop that's been offered on Maui because it combines foundational marketing training with tutorials on networks like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And as a bonus, every student is walking away with what is the foundation for their action-ready social media marketing plan. So when you say you're incorporating it, and this is kind of what differentiates you from some of the other social media classes, uh, you talk about you know coming up with a marketing plan. So this marketing plan includes not only social media channels, but also traditional channels as well? It absolutely does. One of the first things we cover in the workshop talks about buyer personas and identifying your ideal target market. And we work with the business owners to help them identify things like the interests of their customers, going beyond just demographics. Mm -hmm. We go deeper, too, in terms of the sales process. So what is the point of social media beyond just getting the word out, right? It's also driving traffic to your website and informing people about upcoming events or sales and specials. 
So I, I, I like the platforms that you talked about um, that you're going to be covering. So I think this, this uh, great interview with you is one opportunity to ask you about um, one of the platforms that has obsessed, been obsessing Bert and I. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, Pinterest is, is well set up to facilitate commerce, for example, very visual, certainly a better gender balance of users. Um, right now, because my daughter's graduating from college, I'm really tracking what she's up to on Snapchat. Uh, is Snapchat yes. yet mature enough to the point where you would incorporate that into a social media marketing plan for a business? It's my, one of my biggest beliefs when it comes to social media is first you need to get really comfortable on a platform you enjoy using, which is why we start with a network like Facebook. Or for me personally, I love Pinterest, and so I like to start with that network as well. Snapchat is at a point where not as many of the target customers people are trying to reach are using it yet. Mm -hmm. So we like to save that for a more advanced social media user who already understands the idea of content planning and um, knows their customer quite well on other social networks. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, it's good to hear about your love of Pinterest. So uh, without <laughs> giving away the best parts of your upcoming curriculum, what would be one of the takeaways perhaps for Pinterest that you would leave a business, uh, potential business customer with? Oh, good. Okay. Pinterest is literally my favorite network. So one of the biggest takeaways I would tell people about Pinterest is that Pinterest has longevity. Um, a Facebook post is considered old news after about five hours from posting it. But a Pinterest pin can continue to drive people to your website years after it's been pinned. Mm. So it's in a really smart use of an entrepreneur's time because it has a long-term result. That's that's good. That's good. And you know, again, you know, we don't want to give, have you give all your secrets away <laughs> on <laughs> on this tease. But uh, tell us, you know, with with uh, places like uh, let's say Facebook and Twitter, you know, with businesses are jumping on. I mean, one of the main things that they need to do is really start to you know build their community. So, what do you have for suggestions on how they might build their following or build how you know how many likes they get on their page? Oh, I will give you my number one tip, and it should become a social media marketer's mantra, and that is simply to comment more than you post. Hmm. When you do the outreach strategies of being somebody who supports other businesses by commenting on their posts in a friendly, um, supportive way, you are not only getting indirect exposure to their audiences, but you're also building potential partnerships where you might be able to work with somebody and run a contest or refer each other business. There are so many people out there that just post and post and post, um, and they forget about engaging with people. And that's where the real connection happens. So leave lots of comments, ask lots of questions, and don't be afraid to connect with somebody on a personal level, not just seeing them as a dollar sign. So um, you worked with uh, the Maui social media user groups uh, you mentioned, but you now have this new partnership with Nicole, Nicole in Hawaii on Twitter, skywriting by Nicole, which I love. Um, I, yes. I, has she actually done skywriting, or is that just sort of the mental image she's trying to project? <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that's part of the overall vision I she's like going it. for as opposed to actually doing skywriting. But we'll have to talk with Nico to get the official answer on that one. <laughs> sure. So um, before we get to, to the details again of this event and how people can sign up or uh, find more information, 
Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your business. You said uh, Miller Media, was it? Yes, the company is Miller Media Management, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're Maui's top-rated social media marketing company, according to both Google and Yelp. All right, very good. So tell us again when, where, and how much. Right on. Okay, so Maui's Social Media School's first workshop is on creating a social media marketing plan. It takes place on Thursday, May 19th from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Maui Research and Technology Park at 590 Lakoa Parkway in Kihei. And folks can register at MauiSocialMediaSchool.com. Very good. The cost to participate is one ninety nine. Very good. We'll put that up on our show notes as well, which will go up later on tonight. So, Danielle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Bert and Ryan. It has been a pleasure. I'm really thankful that we got to get the word out to Maui's business owners. Absolutely. Have thank a great you. event. All right. Next up, we have Lauren Kaup from the AAUW, which is the American Association for University Women. And she's here to tell us about Tech Savvy and this new event. Well, actually, the, the, what, the newest the event, latest, The latest event happening over at HPU. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to be here today. Well, we try to pump it up. Yeah, yeah. well, you do a good <laughs> job of it. So the AAUW is an organization sort of dedicated to women in higher education. Certainly, we featured previously a scholarship that they offered, for example, for women in STEM, and certainly a program deserving of more attention and more participation. How did you come to be involved with AAUW? Well, I have a background in science education. I'm, um, I, bu- I was brought into the Tech Savvy Committee through a colleague of mine, and that's how I, I joined AUW was through this work with this Tech Savvy event. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't have to be from the University of Hawaii or you know, any particular university. You could be any university woman and be a part of this, uh, you know, this organization? Yes, that's right. There's several branches here mm-hmm. on, on Oahu. Um, several I'm with bran- the Honolulu branch, okay. but there's also a Windward branch. And then there's there's branches or chapters that are affiliated with UH, for example, or Windward Community College. So are they, um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I haven't really heard about this prior to this year. So is there like a growing uh, campaign to you know bring awareness to this organization as well as getting women more involved with tech and science. Yeah, so AAUW really has uh, a number of initiatives. One of them is they do a lot of research around gender equity mm-hmm. in universities and as well as the workplace. And so they've also be- become really interested in STEM education mm-hmm. um, for K-12 all the way up through the university. And so the Tech Savvy event has really come out of, of that work. They've done a few major research studies on why there are so few women in STEM majors and STEM careers. Mm-hmm. And then their most recent study was called Solving the Equation, and that really focused specifically on women in engineering and computer science. And through this research, they um, one of the major premises of both of these researcher findings was that what what really holds women back is implicit bias in um, that idea that that STEM fields are are men's mm-hmm. fields and the humanities are women's fields. And and one of the recommendations that came out of both of these reports was really to promote women women's achievements in the STEM fields um, and to expose girls to role models as a way to kind of break that gender bias. And so AUW at the national level has invested in these kind of two major events, one of which is tech savvy for girls in grades six through nine. Mm -hmm. 
Now, tell us a little bit about what the Tech Savvy event is all about. Sure. It's a full day. It's 8.30 to 4 p.m. And it's for for girls in those kind of middle grades, so grades 6 through 9. Mm-hmm. And it's a really unique program because it combines several different aspects. One is hands-on STEM workshops. So even though the, the title is Tech Savvy, mm-hmm. it really is STEM, the S, the T, the E, and the M. So we have... Um, different hands-on workshops for girls, things like making a DNA necklace where girls extract their own DNA and make a necklace Uh out of their own DNA. Um, Doctor for a day where girls get to... um, put casts on each other and learn how to suture. Really? Wait, wait, wait. Well, back up. <laughs> I want to hear about this DNA. So what would what, what, what I need to extract in order for me to get my DNA? That is, that is a really good question. I'm not exactly okay, sure okay. how they do it. So they must have to it. attend the event. Yes, yeah. yes. To come out. to find out. Um, but And then a session, say, for example, on scratch coding. So there really is the gamut of the mm-hmm. S, the T, the E, and the M. Um, now, there have been tech-savvy events before. Were, had, had you participated? What were some of the more memorable things that had, had, have taken place? Sure. Last year was actually the first tech-savvy event ah, here okay. in Hawaii. And some of the same sessions, or we, we invited some of the popular speakers back. For example, one of the, the Nose Knows, um, one of the canine handlers for, who um, does canine work with the ag mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. Um, to And they, they work with a, a working dog to... Um, to learn sniff out this, yeah, the sniffing stuff, dogs, yeah. and that one was really, really popular last year. So uh, we had a, a variety. Of, also last year, things from the science of making chocolate. Um, that's right. That that, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're a vegetarian, you love chocolate. <laughs> chocolate's a, ve- a vegetable. So, so you know, there really is a wide range. And then another thing that's really unique about the event is the the savvy skills, which is more of those kind of 21st century skills, things like interviewing skills, being uh, really tech savvy in terms of learning about your digital footprint and mm-hmm. what to do mm. and not to do in, in those formative years Reputation of social management. media. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and things like finance. So this year we have a, a finance game where girls will learn a little bit about managing money. So they're right in that kind of sweet spot where they're, they're deciding what their interests are in middle school and it's kind of balancing the the actual the stem the content the the skills of stem with those 21st century kind of inner personal skills. I guess where are you uh, finding some of the instructors or the people that are uh, let's say doing some of these these sessions with the girls? We they're from all over. We have folks coming from JABSOM. We mm-hmm. have um, people coming from UH, from um, the STEM office at UH, mm-hmm. from the pre-STEM academy at UH. Um, we have uh, a session from, let's see, um, Optera, who is involved with the Kahe initiative with the DOE. So they're really... From all over. And the important thing here is that all the presenters are women. It's that idea of making sure that girls see positive female role models in STEM. And we're going to be talking to the Institute for Astronomy later in this show. And I know that um, a connection will hopefully be able to allow to to add more um, diversity again to, to that program. Absolutely. So um, the Tech Savvy event, uh, you're saying it's targeting primarily middle school students? Yes, grades 6 through 9. So um, if somebody had a young middle school, middle school uh, daughter that they wanted to introduce to this program, how can they participate? Sure. So the the best way would be to go to the Honolulu branch of the AUW's website. And it's it's a slightly long website. We but can put the link on we'll the yeah. org. But give it a shot. I can give, give it, it to you right now. It's honolulu-hi dot aaw dot net and mm-hmm. the tech savvy information will be on that front page they can go on they 
can go to the link to register. And another cool thing about this event is that there's the girls portion and then there's also a parent portion where the parents can come a little and learn a little bit more about what it really takes to go into a STEM field. Mm. And so it's like a separate track. It's a separate track. Don't worry for the girls. Your parents <laughs> will be completely separate from you. So if you're interested in learning about STEM and your parents interested in learning how to support you, uh, we are, we're keeping you separate so you won't run into each other. Now, how would you, uh, let's say, measure success from tech savvy? And, and is it something that is a, a recurring event? And how would girls mm-hmm. perhaps follow up with whatever they learn as a result of going? That's a great question. I think that... Um, it, it will be a recurring event from year to year. So this is only our second year, and we have, we we did send the invite out back to the students who came last year. So hopefully we'll see some familiar faces again this year. And mm-hmm. in terms of success, I mean, gosh, that's such a hard question. But you know, we have a really good pipeline here in Hawaii mm-hmm. where we can really see what's happening from K twelve all the way through UH. And so locally here for us success would be seeing more girls enroll in those STEM majors in the UH system, especially things like engineering and computer science, where mm-hmm. we know girls are really underrepresented. Certainly seeing the participants of this event enrolling uh, in college for these these programs. Fantastic. So this event is Saturday, May 21st, again, all day, 8.30 to 4 o'clock p.m. And uh, is the event free? It is It is $5 for student registration mm-hmm. and $10 for parents. It's at HPU at the Windward Campus, and there will be free parking available that day. Fantastic. All right. And again, we will put the link on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. Very good. Thanks, Lauren, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Hope to see girls there. Yep. Have a great event. Thank you. And of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Jackie Keene, Roy Gale, and Ollie Hano. Hino. 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 And we'll talk about this mysterious object from Earth's distant past. Yes, it's the comet Pan-STARRS, named after the telescope that discovered it. What can we learn about our solar system's history from this rocky comet? Of course, we love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio monitoring Twitter. You can reach us at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. HPR fills the, I guess, non-commercial gap that's left by providing a variety of both news and entertainment and quality intellectual programming that you don't see or hear. And I think it provides sort of more truth-telling to the community than you get on many stations. Hi, my name is Bruce McEwen, and I'm a sustaining member of HBR. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Deborah Silverman, author of The Missing Element, Compassion for the Human Condition. The next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about personality types and how you can find the missing element that will change your life. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Jackie Keene, Roy Gale, and Ollie Haino. And, of course, uh, Jackie is an astronomer over at the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And, 
Roy is the assistant astronomer and outreach coordinator for the Institute for Astronomy. And of course, Ali Olivier is joining us on the line all the way from Munich, Germany. He's an astronomer at the European Southern Observatory specializing in observations of distant minor bodies in the outer solar system. And, of course, what can we learn from comets like Comet Pan Stars? And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. It's great to be here. Hey, Roy. Roy. Jackie. Ollie. Uh, thank you. Wonderful to be hey. here. Now, now, um, Roy, I want to have you kind of like uh, sort of set the stage. You You sent out the... Uh, press release. Uh, I know um, one of your colleagues uh, had had written a paper that, uh, in fact, uh, you know, we wanted to have her on, but she's you know flying off somewhere to to I think present. But the idea is that PanStar, the telescope, has our, has discovered this comet, and it's named aptly so, PanStars, just to you know minimize the confusion. The comet's name is PanStars, but there's something special about this comet. And maybe you can sort of set the stage for us. Yeah, it's one of many, many comet pan stars. Uh, all the telescopes uh, found by pan stars are called comet pan stars. And all, they no, have they a number, <laughs> so we can make it confusing for you. Um, but this particular comet is the first one discovered, and now there's a couple that is close, relatively close in the solar system now, but doesn't have a lot of activity, doesn't have a big tail. So it's uh, been called a Manx comet. Uh, Manx cats don't have tails, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this is a mm-hmm. different than regular comets. So... Uh, it spurred people to go on, and Karen Meech is the person you were talking about. Mm-hmm. As the she's landing at the airport now, um, and so the question was, why aren't these active, and what makes them different? So that's what their uh, future study, their ongoing studies with the bigger telescopes, uh, were set out to explore. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have uh, we have Ollie on the line, and we want to welcome Ollie all the way from Munich, Germany. Ollie, uh, tell us what part. Have you been playing with? I know you've been studying comets for a very long time, and what part have you been playing with? Uh, you know, in terms of this pan star comet. Hey, good morning, good afternoon. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> so sorry for me, it's really Germany. Uh, well, you, you know, when that comet was discovered, uh, we realized immediately that there was something wrong. A comet on that kind of orbit. Uh, at that distance from the sun should have been extremely ha- active. It should have had a very long tail, mm. and this one did not. So for, for us astronomers, that's enough to, to realize that, okay, something's wrong. We need to, to look more into, the, into what's happening. And so the, we, we, we got some observations, and uh, Jacqueline will tell you more about that, but the, it, it became quite clear that uh, it was not a standard comet. A normal comet is supposed to be a mix of ice and dust, and when it comes close to the sun, the heat from the sun uh, evaporates the ice, and that forms the the huge tail that we normally see. This one did not, and so looking at the surface of the object, we realized it was made of rock and not of ice. And so that that was really the the the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Jackie, uh, you're with the you know the, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and I want you to tell us a little bit about you know the Astrobiology Institute first, and then and then kind of tell us a little bit about what your involvement with this Pan Star Comet is. 
Well, NASA Astrobiology Institute is a, a consortium of various centers placed around the United States. And the goal is to try and understand the origin of life. And in particular in Hawaii, we try and understand how water arrived on Earth. Where did it come from? We live in, a, in the middle of the ocean. It's very wet here. But mm-hmm. all that water had to come from somewhere. So in Hawaii, we have a unique access to telescopes. We have unique access to a whole suite of oceanography vessels and also access to volcanoes. And all these combined together allow us to discern where this water might have come from. And it did come from the stars, in essence. Mm-hmm. It came from comets, meteorites. Mm-hmm. Um, so the goal of that, uh, NASA Astrobiology here in Hawaii, was t- is to try to understand uh, those. Is, is, is astrobiology a relatively new field? It is. In, in many senses, it is, it's around for the last, say, 20 years at most. And it's just to try and merge. It's interdisciplinary, in essence. It's mm-hmm. to merge the various disciplines of science, astronomy, biology, and uh, various other parts, geology in particular, to try and come together and solve grander uh, problems in science, broader mm-hmm. themes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Ollie mentioned that, you know, it's not made of ice, so it's missing this tail, is more made of rock. Uh, what did that sort of trigger in terms of your science when you're focusing in, in many ways about the the water that might be on a comet? Here's one that doesn't have it. So what, what are you looking to learn from? Well, so... Uh, in essence, yes, it didn't have any water. And so maybe just to put things in context of what this object actually is. So in, if you go out on a dark night and go to Makapu or you go to Dillingham, and if you allow your eyes to adjust, the faintest star you can see is what we call 6.5 magnitude. This comet is 21 magnitudes. It's com- astronomy is a bit odd. It's an inverse relationship. So the fainter it is, the, br- the, the magnitude number increases. Ah, okay, okay. So what that means is this comet is 600,000 times fainter than the faintest star that you can see. Mm-hmm. So this is a challenge to try and observe these objects. And compound that with the fact that it should have an active tail, it should have lots of dust in its coma, and it doesn't really present an enigma to us. Does that harder uh, material, is that kind of, Roy, does that affect its visibility to us, or is it just a matter of distance or size? Well, it's all those things. It's relatively close in, so it's r- roughly at the distance of Mars from the sun. So you'd think, oh, things like that should be easy to right, study, right. but it doesn't have a big tail. It's not outgassing, which you could see, you know, and it's pitch black. You think of comets as bright because we see them with the tails usually, but comets are some of the darkest objects out there. They're t- darker than your pencil lead. Mm. So, uh, you know, 21st magnitude is actually a faint object, and if you want to break up its light into a spectrum and study what it's made out of, uh, you need the biggest telescopes in the world, and that's why, like, Ollie participated with using the ESO's VLT telescope in Chile, we use the Canner Francois telescope here and Gemini telescopes to study these. And so, uh, and these are close in objects. So they're ex- actually very challenging to study exactly because they're pitch black and they don't, they're not giving right. off a lot of uh, material to study. Uh, so, so Ali, uh, this is a good chance for you to tell us, uh, you know, over in the uh, European Southern Observatory, and that's uh, over in Chile. And uh, Roy just said uh, v- um, what VLT and very large telescope. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that very large. Uh, is it how large is that telescope <laughs> in Chile? <laughs> okay, well, you, you guys in Hawaii are familiar with the Gemini telescope, which is uh, a telescope that has 8.2 meters in diameter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very large telescope is four times that. We have four telescopes, each of them. Uh, 8.2 meters in diameter. So it's really a big machine, and uh, it's located in the Atacama Desert in the north of Chile, simply because it's one of the best deserts in the world. It's very remote, it's very dry, there is absolutely nothing around it, so no pollution, no light pollution, and it's in the 
in the Andes, in the in the mm-hmm. mountains, so it's quite high. So mm-hmm. less atmosphere between the the telescope and the and whatever you want to observe. So it's uh, it's let, let's put it that way. It's one of the best telescopes in the world. Let's not go into uh, <laughs> the discussion of uh, which one is better. Um, <laughs> and the, w- w- with that machine, we we managed to get a spectrum of the comet. So a spectrum that means you break the light into its its component into its colors and you can study how the comet reflects the light of the sun and by comparing what what you observe with other spectra of other comets that you know and other asteroids and uh, laboratory spectra we we realized that the the, the comet was actually quite typical it, it really looked like a normal asteroid. If we had seen the spectrum without knowing what it was, it would have said, yeah, just just another asteroid. But the combination of that rocky asteroid on the orbit of an Oort cloud comet is what makes it uh, so special. Well, you mentioned the Oort cloud, and, and for those who aren't familiar with it, Jackie, I mean, that is essentially um, a cloud of these um, objects way beyond even the orbit of Pluto, for example. Oh, yes, well beyond Pluto. And in fact, it, it can be, in essence, around 20 billion kilometers away, mm. uh, miles away, actually. So and is this essentially encompassing or enveloping our solar it system? It does. It can, can view it as a spherical shield of material that's way out there behind us. And the reason why this is important even for astrobiology is that a lot of, uh, it, it's believed or assumed or observed that that's the source of a lot of the elements that come and be, that are part of what our solar system uh, started with, correct? In particular, it's a, a lovely res- reservoir of material that's been frozen in time that has not experienced any heating from the sun, um, and it was flung out there way four billion years ago when the, the solar system was forming. So anything that falls in towards us that we can see, we can actually look at material that existed four billion years ago, mm-hmm. and that could tell us about the origins um, of the solar system, and in particular of the chemical makeup of the building blocks of the solar system. So, so, <clears throat> but, um, you know, the material that's in the Oort cloud doesn't necessarily all come in as comets, right? I mean, comets are coming from, uh, you know, other locations as well. So it's a, sort of a unique situation to have a comet coming in from the Oort cloud. Is that correct? No, we have comets coming in from the Oort cloud all the time. What's the difference about this object is that this object should have been comet-like, but it's not. In fact, it has very little evidence of water uh, evaporating and sublimating off the surface. So as the, the gas sublimates, it lifts these fine particles around. And this comet did not do that. So mm. it's actually the inverse of what we expected. So what was it that indicated to you that it, was, it, it had its origins from the early solar system? I mean, you know, there's... Obviously, there's a path that you can project yes. for this comet. So with comets, to understand where they come from, you need to understand its orbit. And the way you define the parameters that determine the orbit is you have to observe the comet in multiple places on its path. You run some algorithms, Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. that tells you where it came from. So you work backwards Mm -hmm. through modern observations. And this particular object is believed to have been formed inside the inner solar system, but got flung out and then got stuck out in the Oort cloud. And something happens where a star way off passing by our solar system imparts some energy into the into this comet and that forced it back backwards in for the first time perhaps in four billion years. Mm. Um, and so that's why it was formed inside the inner solar system, but it got flung out as the planets formed and migrated inside the solar system. And it stayed out there until some star 
long, long far away, just went by our solar system so and imparted a tiny bit of energy and flung it back in. Yeah, like a rocky time capsule. Yes, um, exactly. Now, Roy, earlier this year, we, ha- we had another show focused on, for example, for the threat of Earth-bound space objects, and certainly that is one of the uh, strengths or purposes of the Pan-STARRS telescope. And when you're describing this amazing discovery of a slightly darker, harder-to-see, non-ice-throwing-off mm. comet that may or may not be headed in our general mm. direction. It does kind of raise the concern that um, are there other of these very similar difficult to see because they're not outgassing um, comets that are swimming toward our general neighborhood. Yeah, so com- uh, PanSTARRS has discovered uh, roughly a dozen of these uh, dark comets, I think, and uh, over its operating time ta- times in the next couple of years, we figure it'll find about 50-ish of them. That's a relatively small number of objects compared to the number of regular asteroids and other things that it's discovering. Mm. And, you know, comets or things that impact Earth are relatively tiny, tiny fraction of the things that just swim through the solar system. Mm-hmm. So and actually, I don't know if any of these uh, dark comets or any of the comets actually cross Earth's orbit directly. So uh, they're not the, well, what we call, <laughs> they're not potentially hazardous objects. Sure. But uh, as it is, I mean, it was discovered uh, a while ago, and it'll take a little while to get to Earth's orbit, but it's it's not a class of objects that we worry about compared to, say, asteroids. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Ollie, uh, you're you're a, a comet guy, and you've been studying comets for a long time, and if there's comets coming in from the Oort cloud, and I think, uh, as Jackie indicated, you know, a lot of them have tails, they have the, the traditional... Uh, signature of a, a comet that we would expect. I mean, what what percentage of this particular find? You know, what kind of it classifies this into? You know, it's sort of this category. And is this a a, a really rare occur- occurrence, or or are we expected to find more of these objects coming in that were sort of originating from the early solar system? Uh, that is the question. Uh, we really do not know how many, what's the fraction of the rocky comets compared to the normal comets. And that's what we are trying to find out. So, uh, as Roy said, Panstar is finding these objects, and we are now embarking in a program to, to study as many as possible. Uh, so we, we, we are trying to, to count them. And simply by counting how many rocky comets there are, we will be able to, uh, to, to guess, to measure the fraction of rocky comets in the Oort cloud. Mm. And that number is really important because depending on how the planet formed and how they evolved in the early solar system, we expect anything from a small fraction to a tiny fraction, something like one out of 100 to... Uh, one out of 1,000. And at this stage, we don't know. We just know that there are not many. But we really want to know what the fraction is. Well, Ali, from that fraction, from that fraction, we will be able to to, to decide uh, how the planets evolved four billion years ago. If uh, more precisely, we know that some of the planets might have migrated in the early solar system. Mm. And that migration will have left an imprint on the early solar system and ejected more or less of these rocky rocky bodies. 
Um, Ali, can you talk a little bit about this process, how it works and how it worked and how it would work going forward? Imagine PanStars does a very broad sweep of the sky, one of the widest sweeps of any observing system. But then it does get handed off, I imagine, to more powerful telescopes like the European Southern Observatory or the Gemini here in Honolulu. And then the data gets collected and passes on to the NASA Astrobiology Institute. I mean, is that a is that a comfortable workflow? Is that something that is is still evolving? Well, okay. The, the the first thing is we need to secure access to the telescopes. So what we have done in the past weeks is to write write up a project that we submit that we present to the uh, to to the telescopes, and these projects are ranked uh, with all the other projects that come from all our colleagues and competitors and we really hope that our will be ranked high and that we will get access to the telescope so once that is done and we're confident that's going to work uh, over the 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 coming years we're going to observe uh, all the manx comet candidates and once we have the data we analyze them and we will be able to uh, to see which one are really rocky and which ones are, for example, just dead comets, mm-hmm. and and that, that that continues. So, in terms of the collaboration, that works really well. Uh, astronomers tend to co- collaborate a lot, and uh, the, the group we are in is uh, has been around for many years. I, I was a postdoc in Hawaii mm. 20 years ago, and that's basically how we started this collaboration. Mm-hmm. Now, Roy, you, you had something to say? Yeah, in general, uh, projects like PanStars uh, now find so many interesting objects to study that it's a challenge to follow them up with bigger telescopes. Typically, every yeah. six months, you propose, I want to observe this and this target. But a lot of times with things like PanStars, you don't know what you're going to find. So you put in a proposal and say, I think I'm going to find something and hold on to some time for me. But there's so many objects to follow up, exploding stars, comets, asteroids, things like that. that well, and then, you've, you know, uh, IFA has come out with, you know, a lot of uh, exoplanet discoveries. Mm-hmm. I mean, wasn't a lot of that coming out of a PanStar as well? A lot of the exoplanet work comes from uh, uh, things like the Kepler Space Telescope oh, and right. then okay. uh, the larger telescopes mm-hmm. using uh, the wobbles and stars from gravity. But a lot of the results on, you know, p- near-Earth objects and potentially hazardous asteroids and comets are just coming from PanStars. So there's a there's a lot of work. And then PanStars just takes the pictures. But to understand what these objects are, like Ollie said, we need a spectrum mm-hmm. that tells us what they're made out of. Mm-hmm. And for that, you need a big telescope. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to get into, like, a little bit about what is it that the spectrum can tell us about. Uh, you know, this Panstar comet. And, and, and I know Jackie has a lot to say about that, but we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after the short break to continue our conversation with Roy Gal uh, and Ali Hano and, of course, uh, Jackie Keene. And uh, we're talking about this Panstar comet that was coming from our early solar system. We'd, of course, love to hear from you, too. We're listening on Twitter, and the phone works as well at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin Big Band Classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2. 
member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. Aloha. I'm Derek Malama, and on the next Kani Kapila Sunday, you can hear music from new releases by Raiatea Helm and Hoku Zudomeister, plus Haley Iraishel, Teresa Bright, Keola Beamer, Jeff Peterson, and don't forget the Kani Kapila Sunday classic. Please join me for Kani Kapila Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Jackie Keen, Roy Gal, and Ali Haino about the early solar system. And of course, as Ryan said earlier, our phones are working. <laughs> that number is <laughs> you can nine, test it. Yeah, 941-3689 on Oahu. And 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break... We were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the Panstar comment and, of course, you know, the fact that it came from our early solar system. And we want to know, how did you, how were you able to tell that it came from the early solar system? And what is what about its spectrum that kind of gives us some hints as to its composition? Jackie? Well, when it was discovered, we discovered by measuring its brightness, just a photometric point. You collect all the photons in a particular wavelength and mm-hmm. add them up. But to really understand the surface, the nature of the surface, you want to get a spectrum. And what you're doing basically is you're collecting all the light uh, between a certain wavelength, so from 0.5 microns to 0.9 microns. And in that, that's what you get a spectrum. And um, the spectrum has a slope. So it either rises with wavelength or falls with wavelength, mm-hmm. or there's a bump inside it where there's more, um, where there's less reflectance. And so what you do is you compare the spectrum of the object we looked at to standard spectra of standard asteroids. And this uh, certainly was not comet-like, but it had a small uh, kind of absorption feature, about 0.9 microns, which suggested that there might be a tiny bit of water ice associated mm-hmm. with this object. And that was unique. We did not expect to see that for this particular class of objects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you get a spectrum of an object, in, of an asteroid or a comet, you just compare it to all the existing classes that are out there, and you try and put it in a class. And we, we could rule out that it was not a dead comet because the slope, the behavior of the spectrum, was not what you'd expect for a dead, bare nucleus comet. Now, you know, the um, so this little dip that you say has some indication that there might be some water on this rock. What about the, um, you know, the comet that uh, Rosetta is studying? Isn't there some uh, similarities or differences or, uh, you know, can we squeeze water out of that? You know that that, that the comet. so so comets come in all flavors uh, and sizes and compositions. So 67P, which mm-hmm. is the comet you're thinking of, mm-hmm. um, it is slightly different in the sense it's a periodic comet. So straight away it hasn't come from the Oort cloud. It's come from a relatively stable orbit about five to seven years. It goes around the sun. It is water rich and it's been well studied, well documented, and it's outgassing water and all sorts of other molecules. Um, so in some ways it is. It's somewhat similar, but it is a lot more volatile, it's a mm. lot more water, a lot more CO2 than the object that we're talking about, C2014S3 Panzers. So, so at, at a minimum, I mean, you, sort of, you can kind of compare the two spectra and, and see the similarities and maybe also see the differences. But now you know that it is in that class of comet because of the, you know, the signature of, of water on, the, on uh, this panstar comet. Well, we know it, had so, it acquired a tiny bit of water. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. this is where Ollie in particular wants to relate this to the various uh, theoretical models that tell us how the solar system forms. So mm. we are observers. 
theoreticians who go away and play with models and invent scenarios for the formation of the solar system need to be constrained. And we constrain them by saying, we observed this object. You said it didn't exist. Reevaluate your models. Right. Well, and then tell well, us what Check happened. your work. Well, mm. we, you know, we want to unconstrain Ollie so that he can tell us what does he think about this early solar system and, and where this comet came from. Okay, so in terms of the water, we, we are really talking about a rock, okay? This is a piece of rock with just a tiny fraction of water on it. And the fact that there is just that tiny fraction of water, we're talking a fraction of a percent, uh, means that this asteroid has never been heated. It, it formed in the early solar system, and it had a little bit of water, and that tiny fraction of water was preserved and there is so little of it that if you had heated the asteroid for just uh, a few years the water would have gone away so the fact that this that this tiny fraction of water is still there means that our object the panstar comet has been preserved in the cold of the earth cloud for four billion years so it's very ancient very pristine and that's that's super interesting so we have that piece of rock formed in the early solar system uh, at, at the very beginning of the solar system and that has been ejected in the old cloud and preserved. So th that's fine. We, we, we know, we, we suspected that this was how it was happening and now we have a, uh, we, we have a measurement, we have a confirmation. So when the, the, the Earth formed, our region, the, uh, the inner solar system, was full of these things. And most of them has be, have been swallowed by the Earth and by Venus and Mars, and that's how the, the planets formed, by accreting, by uh, absorbing all these, all these little, uh, little bodies. Mm -hmm. However, uh, a tiny fraction of them were not absorbed by the planets, but were ejected, uh, were ejected to the Earth cloud, and what we are observing is one of them. Mm -hmm. So this object could have been a part of the Earth, but instead it has been kicked out and preserved. So that's also quite exciting because it's the first time that we, ha that we can put our hands on one of these objects that could have been part of the Earth. At, at so least, yeah. De depending on how the planet formed and what happened in the early history, more or less of these uh, rocky bodies have been ejected. So we, we know that most of the Earth cloud is made of ice, icy bodies that were ejected by the, by the giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and these uh, icy bodies are the, the, the normal comets. So by comparing the two, we will be able to, to see if the planet migrated. So what's that business of planet migration? Is when a planet is absorbing these, uh, these little rocky bodies, mm -hmm. there is an exchange, of, uh, an exchange of energy, an exchange of uh, momentum, and that can cause the planet to move just a tiny bit on its orbit. Now, do that a billion of times, and the, the planet could end up moving quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And from 
the structure of the solar system, we, we believe that the giant planets migrated a lot in the solar system. They moved possibly inward and then stopped and then moved outward. Or according to other uh, theories, they just moved outward. So de depending on the, the model, which are not very constrained at this point, the, the whole dance of the planets was different. And so by observing the Manx comets, we, we, can, we can tell the, the theoretician, okay, guys, here are some constraints. Here are some hard facts that you should factor in your models and uh, refine your, your theories. So we hope that at the end of this exercise, uh, our understanding on how the planet forms will be much better. That's that's really interesting stuff, and I love that you know we still have a pretty wide open field in terms of how we can understand how our solar system uh, formed. Jackie, I wanted to add that the the biggest problem with this project is to find these objects with sufficient time to follow them as they come into the solar system and follow them as they go out. This particular object, C two thousand fourteen S three Panzers, was discovered just before its closest approach to the sun, which is just beyond Mars. And after that, it was continually going outwards. So it got fainter and fainter. So it was harder and harder to study. Mm. So we, we have a, a list of candidates that, with, in combination with PANSTARS, is trying to find these objects sooner on their inbound orbit mm -hmm. so we can look at them more rapidly and more frequently on the inbound. Yeah, I mean, it has a this particular comet has an 880-year orbit, so it might be a little while before we'll be able to, to oh, see. Oh, yeah, well, it won't be it's, my lifetime. <laughs> again, I, sh I, I do want to mention, you know, Karen Meech, who was the author of the paper. She really wanted to be with us, um, but we really appreciated her kind of sharing some of her, her thoughts. Now, Roy, uh, Ollie said something like, this is very exciting because we can get our hands on it. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that's still a theoretical get our hands on it. I mean, but when um, Jackie was talking about the spectrum and comparing it to other spectra so we can make conclusions about it, do these objects, I would imagine, in some cases actually reach Earth? Do we study those to be able to make the, that kind of inference about objects that are still in space? Well, I don't. Uh, in terms of cometary material, uh, I don't know if we have meteorites uh, from comets on Earth. But, uh, you know, we've had missions mm. like Stardust that have collected material and returned it to Earth or uh, the Rosetta mission that have gone up close to nucleus of an active comet. But, you know, this is the first. In t 2014 was the year that this object was discovered, and it was the first of its class discovered. So uh, whether we – we don't even know enough from the spectrum, I think, to be able to say if we found a <laughs> meteorite from a, a comet, if we could identify it as specifically coming one from, from one of these kinds. So we don't actually have any – you know, hands-on stuff to do laboratory. And that's, I mean, we almost never have anything like that uh, for astronomical objects. And I actually want to add to something that Ollie said about, you know, or maybe one of you mentioned about, you know, still lots of stuff to discover in the solar system. You know, this is a totally new class of object we discovered in 2014. Mm -hmm. There's been the recent work on possibly there's another planet in our solar system at an extremely large orbit. So when we think about, you know, what we know in astronomy and we don't know in astronomy, I think it's, uh, you know, this really shows that it's, as scientists, we're happy to actually find new things and realize that we don't know everything. And even close to home, we don't know a lot about our own solar system, which is the model we use to often extrapolate to other things. So, uh, you know, these are exciting things because they also change our perception of what might be out there mm -hmm. in other solar systems. You know, Jackie, uh, having seen sort of the signature that indicates there is some water on, on, on this Panstar comet, 
Uh, how does that inform your, let's say, understanding or theories about how water perhaps was uh, uh, came to Earth? I mean, I'm, I'm often curious about how water came to Earth. And, and given this particular, let's say, comet that has been, you know, sort of preserved in the Oort cloud, but it doesn't have that much water, does it, does it support the theory that, you know, water on Earth came from comets? It's an interesting question. There are many reservoirs of water out there in the solar system. And traditionally, it was thought that comets delivered most of the water to the Earth. But there's a key fingerprint, deuterium to hydrogen ratio, that you can use as a diagnostic to see where Earth's water came from. And there's also something else you need to keep in mind. The oceans, which are on the surface of the Earth, have a different, possibly different signature than the Earth you might find locked way deep in the interior of the Earth. So the true fingerprint of water on the Earth is still very much um, in debate. Mm-hmm. The, the comets, um, traditionally, it's difficult to reproduce that, that D2H fingerprint just with comet water alone. You, you do need other reservoirs of water. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this particular comet, or this particular object we're studying, is that it, it documents a small fraction of water that might also be important for delivery to, to smaller bodies. Um, so it's all adding up and understanding where the water is distributed in the solar system is key to understanding the formation of the solar system. Now, Ali, you made a really good explanation in terms of sort uh, ideas about the formation of solar systems and what this probably changes about assumptions that were previously made. Um, from your work, and certainly there's a lot of uh, there are more and more discoveries of not necessarily uh, other solar systems, but exoplanets, more than one exoplanet in a single system, for example. Um, do you, from just from what you're learning from this particular comet, uh, have any feeling that it could be validated or can be observed through looking at other exoplanets, other exoplanet systems? Short answer: No. <laughs> the, 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 the reason is that detecting exoplanets, planets around other stars, is horribly difficult. And uh, we, we cannot, usually we cannot see them directly. We can only see t- their effect, uh, either because of the wobble they cause on their stars when uh, orbiting around the star or uh, causing a tiny eclipse when they come in front of the star. But so no direct detection, only indirect detection, and horribly difficult. So detecting an exocomet, a comet around an, another star, would be even more difficult. So uh, for the nearby future, we will not really be able to do a comparative study of a solar system comets with extrasolar comets. So that said... We, we believe that a solar system is a solar system, and whether it's ours or another one, they share uh, formation patterns and history, etc. So by studying our solar system and understanding better how it formed and how it evolved, we, we gain knowledge that's usable for all the solar systems. We can, by understanding how planets and, uh, and comets and uh, planetary systems form and evolve, Ours, we understand better how the others are forming and evolving. So in that context, uh, studying the Manx comets and understanding how the planet's migration uh, had some influence in our solar system that will also uh, help us solving other solar systems. Mm-hmm. I love For that. For example, in, <laughs> in other solar systems, we see 
something really strange that we don't have in our solar system, which are hot, giant planets. So something like Jupiter, or really a giant planet that, that orbits very, very close to its sun at, uh, uh, with, with uh, an orbit that lasts only a few days instead of a few years for Jupiter. And we, we don't have that in our solar system. So something different happened. And we believe that it's related to the migration that uh, these hot giant planets migrated inward from uh, the, the outer part of their solar system into uh, the, the region very close to their stars. So understanding better how the migration of planets worked in our solar system will certainly help uh, understanding how these uh, other planetary systems evolved. I, I, I love that. I mean, uh, part of that, um, you answered my, my next question, which was, you know, we might finally get a really good understanding of our solar system, but then later discover that our solar system is just a complete and total weirdo. So, um, Roy, what is the next step? Continued study of this? You said detecting other bodies like this. What should we be watching for? So definitely improved spectroscopy to get better handle on them. And as Ollie said, we want to know the percentage of these. So the real key is to start, I mean, it's as simple as counting. How many can we find with a telescope like PanStars? You can make a model of like, if the solar system formed this way, there should be, we should find 10 or 100. And then we just see which one it is. So where can we kind of keep up with all the new PanStar comet discoveries? Well, you can always look on our website, ifa.hawaii.edu, or we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at UHIFA. Okay, so I'm, I'm expecting a whole new class of, 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 of comets, and I'm excited to have you guys come back. Roy Gal, of course, is the assistant astronomer over at the Institute for Astronomy. Jackie Keene is with the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And, of course, Ali Heino is over in Europe, and he's in Germany with the European Southern Astron uh, Observatory. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll explore the intersection between technology and homelessness. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And of course, we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's Tangerine and a song called Sunset. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Yeah.